Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to Chapter 7 of the Corona Diaries, which uh, has kind of stopped me in my tracks because I didn't, I didn't think we'd get to 7. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, the, the very giggly Mr. Steve we thought, Hogarth... We thought we'd ask you for your money and then abandon it the following yeah. week. That's what we thought, but yeah, we've, we've yeah, kept uh, going. Yeah, but but no, we're still we're holding out in the hope that there might be a bit more coming in. Um, so um, the very giggly Mr. Steve Hogarth this morning, who I have to say, um, everybody started out the day quite grumpy, but has actually managed to get quite giggly quite I've quickly. I've up now. Yeah, I think that Dominic um, Cummins did it. Yeah, yeah. we've just uh, well, we'll tell you about that in a minute. Morning, H. How are you? <laughs> morning. Good morning. Oh, I'm fine now. Yes. Yes, yes. fine. Light-hearted. Light-hearted. We've just recorded um, a Q&A, which will be something that is part of the uh, the extra content that our patrons get on the uh, on the, the Patreon deals, um, which we've told you all about, and there's details on the end of the show and what have you. But we just recorded that, and uh, and we and we kind of lost it a bit in the middle, didn't we? Um, no, 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 no. It was perfectly, perfectly sober throughout. Uh-huh. When I say sober, I mean you know as a vibe, as a vibe, obviously. yes. So, uh, but that kind of that's loosened everything up a little bit. So, uh, and and as a way of an example of the kind of things we've been discussing on the Q and A, um, we've had a question in uh, from a gentleman in Hollyhead, and I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's spelled D E W Y, so it could be Dewey or it could be Dewey. Not quite sure. I'm sure he'll tell us anyway. Or, D- uh, or Dewey, Dewey, or yes. Mr. Evans. We'll go with Mr. Evans. Mr. Evans from Hollyhead has asked, what are you saying at the beginning of the podcast? And this actually then talks to the fact that I had uh, somebody on Facebook uh, contact me uh, saying, loving the podcast, but the, the there's a really shrill sound at the beginning of the podcast. Um, is, is shrill is that is the, I don't think What's he said shrill. playing but, it on? 1960s uh, <laughs> transistor radio. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what he is, but we'll leave it there. So, um, to answer the intro questions, the shrill sound is your. That's your um, doorbell. Doorbell. Yeah. It's doorbell. It's a proper doorbell because we we did this house up. You know, um, well, from being a bit of a wreck when we bought it, and uh, one of the most complicated things and time-consuming things of, of the entire building work that we did. On, on this house and just to put put you in uh, give you an idea we only kept the front door um everything else was renewed the front door and the roof i think are original and everything else was done but the thing out of all of it that took the most time was the bloody doorbell because i'd bought um i'd bought a doorbell in a um 
uh, what do you call it? Not a, not a, hang on, a reclamation. In a reclamation yard, I bought this lovely doorbell that was like, you know, a proper bell on a springy, dingy thing like people, posh people used to have for calling the bottler, you know, in the old days. And I thought that'd be so much nicer than one of these electric things. Um, but it's a Cotswold stone cottage. The The walls are about half a metre thick. And we had to drill a hole through the wall for the uh, for the string because outside there's one of those things that you pull downwards and it's got lots of little pulleys and things, you know, which really appeals to me. So it was an absolute must. Um, I loved the kind of Wallace and Gromit aspect to it. Um, and I tried for months to, rec- to, to drill a hole through the wall and failed. Um, and in the end, we had to get the builders back in again to drill this hole just for this string for the doorbell. Anyway, you um, you pull you, and and we, I'd got this bloke called Bob the Builder, and uh, so he was outside with this bloody great big drill, much more butch than anything I had. Um, and he said, "Look, I'm going to drill from the outside, but the problem with that is going to be that when I get." through it's going to take all the plaster off so when i'm nearly there i want you to shout and let me know i'm nearly there coming back to dominic cummins in it here but, <laughs> but when i'm nearly there he says i would like you to shout and then i'll stop and i'll come inside and drill from the inside out make a lovely neat job i said that's a great idea so he promptly went outside got hold of the biggest drill in the world which made so much noise that I'm screaming, nearly there, nearly there, until till it came through and took half the bloody wall down on the inside of the kitchen. So then we had to rebuild the wall on, in the kitchen and, and re-plaster it just to get this doorbell string through. So it became quite a thing. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a real ringy, tingy, tingy doorbell. And every time I every time I play the podcast now, even if it's on the tiny little laptop speakers... Vibes jumps into the air and goes and answers the door. <laughs> well, I've just, I've just checked. It was Nikki Yordanoff who asked us that question about the, yeah. or mentioned that. So they are Nikki. So with the amount of time and trouble that's that's gone into getting that doorbell up, you can hear it in its absolute glory. So apologies if it's a bit shrill. Um, yeah, if it's and, shrill, and then, go and buy some better headphones. And there we have it. <laughs> um, the. The other question about what we're saying at the beginning of the podcast. So that I you're on say, about core blimey trousers, aren't you? I, I'm and on that's about quite core hard to trousers. hear, even though I know what you're on about. I, I, I thought because what do you call them? Lounge pants. Lounge pants. You see? Yeah. 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 That's not a word most people will be familiar with, especially no. in your accent. No, you no no. It's, it's actually, yeah, you're right. It's a wrong mix there. My accent and large pants. But you, the the day we recorded. In fact, you know what? Every single time I've been around your house, you have had a pair of gore blimey trousers on. H is now standing up, and he has got his gore blimey trousers on, and there we, and a fantastic Lego T-shirt actually as well. <laughs> so, um, so you've all you are you are permanently in your gore blimey trousers, yes. and I just happened to make the point the next time I was coming around, I'd put a pair of I've got a pair of University of New Hampshire ones, very similar to that, not not in the same league obviously, but remarkably comfortable. My not my go tos. Once you start with these, you, it's very hard to wear anything it's else. You put put a pair of jeans on, and you you feel like you've you've got you know your legs in toilet roll holders for the rest it's, of the day. 
it's a slippery slope, isn't it? It's like it is, vodka yeah. and heroin, really. It is, um, yeah. Or or a or you know, or a string vest and a can of tenants. You know, once you're there. Yeah. There's no, there's no turning back. No, yeah. Okay, so, um, so we've got some important things to talk about. We need to, we need to be actually important for a second. Uh, first thing is that you've been working on a a single, which I believe is just about to come out. Oh yes, yes, but uh, the Harry Dunn's brothers. Yes, yes. Um, how did that happen? Um, I'll tell you how it happened. Um, I only live um, about, I don't know, a mile or so from the RAF Croton airbase. Um, and it was a car coming out of the airbase that turned left, I think, on, on the right-hand side of the road. And a lady called Anne Sekoulis, uh was driving it and had forgotten she wasn't in America. Um and um, poor old Harry was on his motorbike, came round the corner, and she hit him head on. Uh, she was on the wrong side of the road. Um, you've probably heard about it in the news. And um, the police came, and she helped the police with their inquiries at the scene. Um, and then um, I think they asked her to 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 come to turn up at the um, the police station the following day. I'm not sure about that, so. I don't want to say anything that isn't true, but I know that she was allowed to to leave the scene. Uh, um, you know, Harry sadly died when they got him to the hospital um, from his injuries, and um, so then, of course, it was a it it, it, it turned from an accident into a manslaughter uh, case. And um, she promptly got on a plane and returned to America. Instead of hanging around to face British justice, and so Harry's poor mum Charlotte, and that's the other thing. Harry and his family lived in a village called Charlton, which is where I used to live, and lived there. You know, Niall grew up in Charlton, so did Sophie. So lived there for I don't know sixteen, seventeen years, um, and. Our next door neighbour, who was over the back wall, was called Rad Seeger, and he was a lawyer, and and he's a, he's American. He's a, he was actually born in Hawaii, hence the name Rad, which was an old surfing term. If something was rad, it was really cool, and so his mum and dad obviously called him Rad because they thought he was really cool, um, and. Um, so I, I I got to know Rad and his wife Sarah and their kids really well because they were our immediate next-door neighbours, as you would, over 16 years. And I'm even the godfather to one of Rad's children. Well, his, his second child, his boy, um, he, 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 had, he was christened in the local church in Charlton Newbottle Church. And I was, I, me and my ex-wife were godparents, so I'm, I'm, I'm godfather to Rad, one of Rad's kids. So Rad um, heard about the whole situation with Harry and his parents. Then they're, they're not a wealthy family. They haven't got the kind of money that could fight a big legal case. So after Ansacoulis legged it, this poor woman was faced with the prospect of not only having lost her child, 
but having no redress, having having no justice for what had happened because the perpetrator of, of a child's death had run back to America. So, you know, Rad lives in the same village. It's only a small village, and he took it on. And he said, "I'll, I'll take it on, and I won't charge you anything." And I'll, and he was, he's been using his own savings to fly back and to to Washington. He's in meetings with Donald Trump and God knows what, and meetings with Dominic Raab here. Um, interestingly, whilst Donald Trump has, has met him on more than one occasion, Boris Johnson has flatly refused to meet him, which is pretty amazing when you consider this whole thing has happened in the UK and you, you, you've got to actually wonder what kind of a, a man Mr Johnson is to not be able to find that time. And that, that, that's, not, that's not me trying to be political, that's just me talking about one human being having some kind of sympathy for another human being and and if 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 the president of the USA will agree i mean i know donald's crazy and all of that but but at least he agreed to see red and so far boris hasn't and i think that tells you all you need to know about our country um anyway to get off my pedestal for a minute um Rad phoned me up one day and he said that Harry's brothers are musicians. And one of them's a singer and one of them plays the guitar and they're not bad. And, and they're, they're trying to make a record to raise some money for a foundation so that other people who find themselves in the same position with, with some massive injustice that they're facing and no money to, 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 to hire any lawyers um, can come to this foundation and and plead their case, you know, and 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 perhaps this foundation could help them in a way that that nobody's really helped Harry apart from apart from uh, Harry and Charlotte, apart from Red, you know, who's done it off his own bat. Um, and they want to make a record, and they found this guy in London, and he's a bit of a producer, and he used to do this, and he used to do that, and they've they've been in the studio with him, and it's. They're not really feeling comfortable where he's trying to push them with it, and it, it feels like um, you know he's in it for the money more than he's in it for anything else. So, so uh, I just said, "Well, we've got a studio, man. You know, we've he can they can have some studio time for nothing, and and um, I'll give Mike Hunter a ring because I know the kind of person Mike is, and I'd be very surprised if if he won't do it for nothing as well." So Mike uh, offered his services for free and the boys came over to the racket club and recorded their song, which is called Requiem for a Soldier. And it, it's about a band of brothers. And it's very moving when you hear it in the context of, of, of them having lost their brother. Um, um, so, you know, I spoke to Marillion about it. All the boys were, were totally up for helping out in any way they could. Lucy said she would help out with the with the business and getting the record out if they needed it, and uh, it's gone from there. And they they made the record. They asked me to sing a backing vocal on it, and I did, and it was rubbish, so we didn't use it. And um, <laughs> um, and and I played piano on it. I played a little bit of a piano tinkle on it. That's that was my contribution, really apart from getting them through the door. 
and it's coming out soon and it's it's a beautiful little song and i would i would urge you all to uh to buy a copy if you can afford it because uh it's for an amazing cause and this poor poor family are still fighting to 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 to, to get an extradition of of this woman back to to england and the irony is, of course, that if she just stayed put and faced justice, you know, they, nobody was going to put her behind bars. She didn't mean to do it. It was an awful accident. Yeah, it was reckless driving. But she is American and, you know, you could see how it could happen. So I think it would have taken a very harsh and unreasonable judge to put her behind bars for that. So, but But now... There's, she's made such a mess of it, um, and who knows if if justice will ever be done? Yeah, it's a tough call because it's it feels it feels like there's a political injustice there without wanting to get too embroiled in politics. That nations then just you know say right, well, okay, it's our citizen. You're not, you know, and actually this is this is a human story. This is not about diplomatic relations or about the way those kind of things work it's like you say it's 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 not that there's a there's a necessary fault but there is a point where you have to stand up and you know you have to um you know you have to face an account for the things that you've you've done and i i agree with you i don't think it would would lead to anything custodial but i do think it's, it's important it's seen that you know the the proper process takes place. Uh, well, I hope I I wish them the 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 best of success with it. We'll put the details on the uh, on the on the show notes to make sure you've got all the details, and it'll be all over your Facebook page. And it'll be all over the Marillion stuff as well. But we'll make sure it's on the on the notes for the podcast as well. So uh, no, it's super you know super project to have, have, have been involved in. Um, the other thing, while we're on bits of things like that. Um, there's a a thing called the British Podcast Awards, um, which has gone live this week. In terms of, um, it's a there's there's a whole load of awards. There's, there's ten or twelve awards in this this thing. It's to do with Acast and the BBC and what have you. But there's a Listener's Choice Award, um, and um, this podcast isn't nominated for any of the categories because it was way before we'd even started. But uh, we are eligible for the Listener's Choice. So somebody threw up on. Um, one of the Facebook pages that they'd been on and voted for it. And that kind of piqued our interest. And then we started getting other people who went on and voted for it. So we thought we'd mention it um, to, to, you know, to everybody listening that if you're enjoying Corona Diaries um, and it's bringing a little bit of, you know, happiness and joy and respite to your life, then uh, you might want to consider lending as you vote. So, um, and I actually think you've done a little, you've done a little video clip, haven't you? Um, I have. I have done a little video clip. I'd had a glass of wine or two. And uh, so yes. uh, I was, I, there's a certain, the aura's not purple. No. That way. It's another colour entirely. <laughs> I would agree with that. Uh, and did have actually have Even a the, dog did, the dog didn't run away at any point during that. It's, it's very mellow. It's got a, it's got a mellow vibe. <laughs> Uh, shall we say so which is something that will go up on the patreon page but do you know what maybe we ought to just take that video and distribute it a little bit wider because it is it is very humorous <laughs> uh, we'll put it up on patreon first but then maybe we'll we'll let everybody else 
see it as well because it is quite it is quite funny. See, um, the world can find out what a lush I've become. <laughs> yes, yes, and there wasn't definitely an element of lushness to that to that particular uh, that particular thing. Um, Quick shout out for Ian Maidley in Manchester, who took it took poor Ian an age to sign up for Patreon, but he, he persevered and went through. So I said I'd give him a quick shout out. So thank you, Ian. The lovely thanks, Ian. Ian Maidley. The lovely Ian Maidley. Cheers, mate. Um, bless him. Um, so that's good. And then before we go to diary, um, I wanted to, and I don't know actually we'll have enough time for this. Might have to return this to the, on, on a different day. But uh, we were talking a little bit about um, cinnamon. So we talk about apple and cinnamon in a crumble yeah. question that's in the mm. Q&A. And you mentioned that you'd become... Cinnamon was now a, a taste that reminded you of California. Mm. And that then got us on to saying, at some point, we need to talk about Better Dreams as a lyric. Um, because we've talked about this as well. We've both got slightly complicated relationships with... Not relationships in, relationships with... Uh, Los Angeles. We have. Yeah. So I was gonna. I was just gonna say. Do you want to expand on that just a little? Sure. Uh, the first time I ever I ever went to LA was peculiar in itself because um, my band, the Europeans, never really had any success to speak of anywhere except for in California. And there was a radio station called KROQ. I think it's still K Rock. It and is. I think it's still it around. Is. It's still and around. Yeah. I don't know if it's as influential as it used to be. I think it's still quite a hip station. But um, it it was playing the living daylights out of our um, animal song. We 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 made this single with lots of mad yodeling on it, and um, and this mad video where we were all dressed as lizards and Christ knows what. Um, and KROQ got onto it and started. There was one particular DJ there, and and he was playing it umpteen times a day. So then we we had a a, a radio hit in California, and went there and and was back in the days when um, Ian Copeland um, had an agency in New York called FBI. He was Miles Copeland and Stuart Copeland's brother. Um, and um, he set up a tour for us in 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 the USA, doing a handful of shows there. And I'd never been to America at this point, and we flew straight to LA. Um, and it was kind of strange because our guitarist Colin War had a girlfriend at that time called Tony Childs. Um, who he'd met. How did he meet her? I can't remember how he'd met her, but he'd met her. In, I think he'd met her in London, but she was from LA. And she ended up being becoming quite a big star herself. She made an album, that, that, and I played on one of her singles, Don't Walk Away. Um, and she came and picked us up at the airport in this yellow Buick, this yellow vintage Buick which was, you know, a pretty unreal thing to climb into having got off the plane and uh, drove drove into, you know, up up, um, 
up Sunset Boulevard in the Yellow Buick and went to the, the Rainbow Bar and Grill, you know, which was like the rock and roll place to go. And I fell asleep into a pizza in the Rainbow Bar and Grill because I was so, I kept saying, I've got to go to bed. I'm so tired. And let's go here. Let's go there. So he put, I'm really, really tired. And we ended up in the Rainbow. And I did actually fall asleep into the cheese. Um, um, before before uh, b- before she finally relented and let let me go back to my hotel and go go to sleep, um, and so that whole experience and we you know we'd go to nightclubs and we'd be in the roped off area and everybody wanted to meet us because we, we were they thought we were stars because we got this big hit on, on the coolest radio station we weren't just stars we were hip as well you know so felt what it was like to be hip <laughs> um, and everybody was trying to give us drugs and you know it was just it was just amazing it was an amazing time um and i had just had a whale of a time out there um and we had this tour manager called texas tim who uh, was a replacement tour manager because the tour manager we'd taken with us from london Got hepatitis on the plane. I think he, I think he'd been sticking needles in himself, unbeknownst to us. So we'd got this tour manager whose job it was to look after us, and he was taken off the seven four seven in LA in a wheelchair, That's <laughs> <laughs> straight to hospital. <laughs> so then we, there we all were, you know, green as grass in in America for the first time in our lives. The tour managers in hospital. We had to get another one. And we got this bloke called Texas Tim who was just so smooth that water ran off him, you know, and was really, really, I mean, he was really brilliant. He, he, he was as smooth as silk and he made all kinds of things happen for us. Um, I remember when we got on the, the 747 after we'd been in LA to go back to New York, he'd arranged, we were all flying economy, and he'd arranged for us to get on the plane first. And a tan, you know, and a voice came over the tannoy and announced our names, and we got on the plane before anyone. Um, oh man, I've got to tell you the story—not now, but remind me on some other occasion to tell you the story about landing in New York and being met off the plane by the drug enforcement officers. Right, um, because that—that's quite a cool story as well. That was my first ever experience of New York City. But putting that to one side, and it's just, you know, parking that story, good as it is, um, I thought L.A. was fantastic um, because I'd had such a good time. And then I went again a few years later. I think I must have gone. Maybe that, maybe that was with Marillion the first time. And I kind of saw through the glitz a little bit. And, and I thought, well, everyone in this city is just trying so hard to show off, really, to make themselves appear to be, you know, wealthy, larger than life. You know, you could sit sit in a cafe on sunset and just watch Lamborghini after Lamborghini going by with these characters and, you know, and then Ferraris coming the other way and then vintage Astons and everyone was showing off and... um I'd been talking to one of the locals, and you know, God, there's a lot of money here, and, and and they were saying, yeah, but a lot of these people in these Lambos, it's all they've got. 
because this town is all about making out that you're successful because if you if if you look like you're successful you can get meetings with people who otherwise wouldn't see you you know you can't go for a meeting to pitch a movie unless you go in a in a, in a car that that makes you look rich because then you, you you're more likely to get through the door um well this is what i was told it's probably not even true but that's what i was told uh, but I think it's certainly true that a lot of people driving these Ferraris have got these Ferraris instead of houses, you know, and they're they're, they're living. So so I painted, I started to paint this picture, and I started to write Better Dreams that lyric many many years ago, and I kept fiddling with it and changing it. Uh, you know, about this guy driving down Ocean Boulevard in his shiny car and, um, you know, the, the, the you know his girlfriend all full of Botox and, you know, and, and filler. Um, because it's, it, it's, it, it's a town all about image and all about glamour. And yet, you know, if everybody, everyone's pretending, everybody wants to be, Julia Roberts or Richard Gere or whoever they perceive to be, you know, the huge star. Um, and so I started to write songs. I was pretty critical of L.A. And then uh, I went back again uh, a third time with this sort of jaded idea of the place. And I had a really good time again. And I thought, oh, maybe I've been a bit too hard on L.A. You know, maybe it's not this desperate shallow money pit maybe it's you know maybe it's got a bit of soul to it and hey you know every you know the sun shines every day people seem happy uh i'm happy being here you know i'm having a good time um what's not to like and then i went again and i went the other way again and i thought this place is a crock of shit so so i think Depending on which street you walk down, on which day, you can you can review, or or which person you run into and have a conversation with, you can you can you can review your opinion of of LA, hundred and eighty degrees. Um, and so that's how Better Dreams came came together, and it paints the the picture of uh, of a guy who's just trying to make it in movies. And he goes, and and also this idea of of glamour and success, and how how what we perceive success to be, um, and the fact as well that if you are poor in Los Angeles, and there are a lot of poor people, you know, in certain parts of LA, and it, you know, if you're poor and black, it's always going to be harder. Um, and you spend a good portion of every day sitting out on the stoop watching these Lamborghinis going by, you're going to think, I could never have that. Um, and there's so many guns in America that, you know, getting hold of a gun and going and stealing money is is rather easier than earning it. And so I, I'm i suggesting, and maybe it's a naive suggestion, but I'm suggesting that certain people 
who realize they can never they can never aspire to the kind of um uh, wealth and glitz that's been pushed into their face day after day might find a a faster way of getting there you know and whether that, that that's by dealing drugs or, or or being part of a gang but it's almost the inevitable consequence of putting those two things together i think you know because you're constantly shoving this dream in somebody's face so whether they then want to be an actor or whether they just want the level of material wealth that this other person's got some people will, might find a way to do that you know the kids on the east side watch the cars going by they never could have if they worked all their lives take a gun and go shopping um can we can we dream better dreams than these you know can, could everything be a bit fairer please um that's that's what i'm saying I've had exactly the same experience. I've I've been over as part of what I used to do work-wise. I used to go every year, uh, and and one of the things that we would do after we'd finished the event that we were at, which was sort of in Anaheim, a bit further away, um, but then I'd go and spend a couple of nights in Santa Monica, and if you wanted to see the the bit where the two parts of LA meet, then somewhere like Santa Monica was perfect because you'd you'd walk down the shopping street in Santa Monica. It's a really famous shopping street. And you'd sit and you'd have a coffee and and you 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 know I I sat um, I sat next to Robert Downey Jr. having breakfast and that's Santa Monica you will bump into somebody yeah. and you'll bump into proper A list American stars and you are looking at the beautiful people and mm. and really the beautiful people that were, you know and then you walk two streets down to 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 the ocean and it's just it's just people sleeping rough. Mm. And it's not one or two, it's hundreds, mm. um, you know. And, and and it's never been more evident to me that both sides of the American dream in that one in that one place because Santa Monica is is the crystallisation of it, and you know. And it's it's funny because every time you get, I'm I'm with you. Every time I've been, I've come back thinking a different thing about the place. Sometimes I've come back sitting by it. Other times I've come back having really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, and I can't, I can't land on something because ultimately behind it all, there's something wrong. There's definitely something wrong that you'll never be able to get away from. However I've, good a time you've had, there's just something there that's wrong. I finished that song with a question, not a statement. You know, can we dream better than dreams than these? I didn't say we can. You know, no. because there's a powerful argument for a dream factory because everyone needs to dream. You know, and, and, and to lose yourself in a fantasy or a movie or an idea of somebody's beauty or, or, or wealth is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we all need a bit of that. We all need, uh, you know, a place to abandon ourselves and get get away from our dreary everyday lives a lot. I mean, not mine. I don't have a dreary life. I have an amazing life. So I'm not, I'm not trying to pity myself. But there are people out there that have pretty dreary existences or, or mundane is a better word than dreary, you know, just do their, do their job and get on with it, and head down and get by and... and um, 
you need it. So I, d- I didn't say we can dream better dreams than these. I said, can we dream better dreams? You know, it's and and that that was really the reflection of me saying I'm still trying to make my mind up about this play. Right. Well, there we are. Better dreams, and uh, yeah, interesting that we both actually not knowing it had the similar sort of experience. Um, we'll go for a bit of diary now, uh, and we're still on holidays in Eden tour. Um, so there'll be there'll be a little bit a little bit more of that, um, and then once we've had some diary, we'll uh, we'll we'll come back and we'll wrap up. Okie dokie. Sunday, twenty ninth of September. Hammersmith Odeon, London. Mid-tour disorientation combined with 27 pairs of eyes from the encircling fluffy toys threw me into terror during the first few waking seconds until I remembered that I was at home in Sophie's bed. She'd swapped with me. It's common during a tour to spend your first five or six waking seconds trying to remember where you are, which country, which town, which bed you've got into, and if you're really together, what day of the week it is, and whether you've got a show or a day off. Waking up at home in a toddler's bedroom is therefore especially puzzling. I got up and spent the morning drinking coffee and eating toast. Took Fifi to the park for a swing, I had to dry this swing with a tea towel following the heavy rain of yesterday. At around two, I drove into London and checked into the Gore Hotel in Kensington, just in time for the Spanish Grand Prix, which I enjoyed, relaxing on the bed with the curtains closed. I needed the peace. Mansell won. Sound check at Hammersmith Odeon went well. Had my hair trimmed by Lisa, my hairdresser from Henley, who had come over specially. She bought me a present of a jar of moulding mud gel, which she's currently using in the salon. I used the stuff for the show and would later discover that when it gets in your eyes, it causes temporary blindness. The show went well despite the projector jamming and the rhythm sequencer not working during a collection. I even ended up telling the joke about the nun and the blind man while Steve R tuned the twelve string. This was to be an omen. Later that day, I would feel the initial effects of blindness, which were to worsen and become total by tomorrow night's show. Backstage after the show, I met Sarah Ball, who painted the Holidays in Eden cover art, along with Holidays in Eden producer Chris Neal and his wife, plus Bob and Caroline from Stanbridge Farm, where we had rehearsed. Caroline said, You'll be there forever, to me. Wow, I wonder what she meant. Went back to the Gore Hotel bar with E.M. Ayers and various other chums, wives and colleagues. Took lots of pictures with my little camera. I was seeing fog and rainbows around the lights. Couldn't help wondering if someone had slipped additional substances in my drink. But it was the hair gel. Went to the Up All Night Cafe with Steve Rothers, Nigel Luby, Lana Topham and others. Had eggs on toast and chinwags about Yes with Nigel and about Bowie and the psychedelic furs with Lana. Got to bed around five in the morning, having already had breakfast. Drifted off into sleep, blind drunk, and woke up just plain blind. 
Monday, 30th of September, Hammersmith Odeon. I couldn't see properly and my eyes were still stinging. Last night's spiked drink theory gave way to the realisation stroke remembrance that it had all started on stage at Hammersmith. I remembered the sweat running into my eyes and how it was stinging more than usual. It must have been the moulding mud hair product. On the side of the tub, I could just about make out a warning about keeping it away from the eyes. Whoops. I was yet to make a bigger mistake when, during sound check, I bathed my eyes with Optrex. This, unexpectedly and immediately, made them much more painful. By the time I was to go on stage for the second Hammersmith Odeon show, my eyes were sore and streaming and the audience were no more than blurred figures. Oddly enough, I enjoyed the show more than the previous night, perhaps because of the blindness, which made it easier to get inside what I was singing. The show was fraught with problems for Steve R, who had a graphic go down and broke a string during the Easter guitar solo, which was a shame. The audience seemed relatively quiet, although I'm sure 99% of bands out there would have been delighted with the response. We're used to being spoilt. After the show, EMI Big Guns, Rupert Perry, Clive Swan, Mike Andrews, Steve Davis and John Walsh came back to say hello. I showered and was taken home, still in a lot of pain, by Steve, not the Gad, the runner, who was lovely. I couldn't see well enough to drive home myself. I climbed into bed, eyes streaming and hurting, and eventually willed myself to sleep. Tuesday, 1st of October. Home. Rabbits, white rabbits. Woke up biblically. I can see, I can see. My eyes were much better. What a relief. Dizzy marched me off to the docks anyway and he gave me some antibiotic cream. Doctor, doctor, I've got a strawberry growing out of my bottom. I'll give you some cream to put on that. I picked Fifi up from school at 12 and we went to the thatched tavern at Cheapside near Ascot for lunch. Got back around three and I went to bed for an hour whilst the girls went to an antenatal and then to the park. I got up again around 4.30. A few people phoned to say they'd enjoyed the show, which was nice. Rondor sent me a basket of fruit, which had an accompanying card saying, Not bad, even for a blind man. Bathed Fee and put her to bed. The evening was spent watching Morse on the telly, an episode I hadn't seen. I find Morse very relaxing. Diz went to bed at 10.30, but I hung around till midnight, scribbling this diary up to date. Went to bed for a couple of hours, couldn't sleep, so I got up again for an hour, around two o'clock. Finally got to sleep at three o'clock. Somehow I'm jet-lagged, but I haven't been away. Wednesday, 2nd of October, home. Up at 10.30, did my accounts and VAT return, picked Fifi up from school at 12, went out in the afternoon to Windsor. Took Fee for a swing, and then we all went to the dome for a coffee. Quiet stuff. Came home, mowed the lawn, pruned the roses, had tea, got in the bath with Sophie, and after she was in bed, watched the football on the telly. Sue went to bed early as she gets very tired now. Only three weeks to go. Fortunately, she still seems well. 
Not much packing to do as I haven't touched my suitcase since I got back on Monday night. I'll stick a jumper in for Scandinavia. Dreamt of lying in bed, singing loudly and being given electric shocks in the face. Thursday, 3rd of October. Home, Rotterdam. Up at nine-ish. At 10.30, a cab arrived and took me over to Terminal 4. Fortunately, we live quite close. Checked in and had coffee in the cafe with Mark and John. The flight was, of course, late, but uneventful. Met at Schiphol by Reinold, the EMI rep, and a man in a minibus. Arrived at the hotel around two and went shopping for a new battery for the Black Watch. That's a timepiece, not a Scottish regiment. Came back at three o'clock for a solarium session, past a man with an old wooden barrel organ. Transported back to old childhood thriller movie, Puppet on a Chain. Solariumed and showered, then we went over to the Ahoy Sports Palace, which still, and I suspect always will, sounds like a tube station. Rondord sent us all baskets of Dutch stuff. Cheese, fruit, sweets, etc., which is very generous considering that I'm the only member of the band who's signed to them. And also included Advocar, which all Dutchmen seem to loathe, and lemonade, so that I could make myself snowballs. A sweet thought, bless them. The show went well. High points, apart from the attendance figures, were the crowd singing Easter, the space, which I sang really well, my voice having had two days rest, and incommunicado when Paul Devine lit the audience. Ten and a half thousand people all singing. Afterwards, EMI cracked the champagne backstage. Then it was back to the hotel to drink blue things and off to bed, conscious of the dreaded early morning call. Friday, 4th of October. Rotterdam to Maidstone. Up at 7.30 to catch a 9.30 plane. 40-seater prop job. These tend to blow about a bit in the wind. To Gatwick. Picked up in a limo by a good old, uh, young actually, Jason, and taken to a hotel outside Maidstone. There were equipment problems at TVS, i.e. the chap who had brought the equipment to TVS was there and TVS thought he wasn't, etc. TV people tend not to interface very well with rock and roll people. We had lunch at the hotel and wandered down to TVS Studios to rehearse tomorrow's Motormouth show. Midi gloves and dryland playback. Fraught with hassle and nerves, things broken, monitors not right, etc. Eventually got finished mid-evening and had an early night. Saturday, 5th of October, Maidstone, TVS, to Paris, Le Zenith, all in one day. Up at 7.30, had breakfast and went to TVS for the live TV. Couldn't believe it, everything worked and everyone was happy. Gabby Roslin, the presenter, told me No One Can was one of her favourite singles. I wonder if she meant it. With huge sighs of relief, we left TVS and flew Danair 737, packed and it landed like a stone, to Paris, where we were met by the European tour bus. Went immediately to bed and decided the bus and I were going to get along just fine. 
Sound check went very well. It usually does at Le Zenith. It's a great sounding stage. On the whole, you can't fuck up a good room. Just as no amount of expensive technology can make a bad room sound very good. I was looking forward to getting out there on my own terms to my favourite audience. I was not disappointed. I never felt such emotion from 4,000 people. The show was sold out and they were wonderful. The whole band was in shock afterwards. Sometimes audiences are particularly enthusiastic and loud, but the Paris audience seem to pour out heart and soul as well. Nights like these make everything worthwhile and are unforgettable. One moment from a show such as this compensates for every Ford Transit van repair I struggled with, every agonising knock from steel against bone on snowy cold days, every shitty gig I hauled my piano in and out of, every humiliation suffered in working men's clubs, even the two years of pain getting my right thumb working again after our nasty little bass player tried to kill our drummer on that cruise ship in the 70s and I got in the way and almost bled to death. Promised to send Gérard Trouot, our French promoter, a yellow submarine. Left about one-ish on the bus, went to bed and woke up in Dusseldorf. Uh, so we're back uh, from the diary section. Uh, Holders and Eden tour first leg uh, UK's finished. We're starting to go over the water and do do some shows uh, across the water. Uh, I've got what I, I tend to do is I'll look at the diary section and I'll um, and I'll think of some questions uh, before um, before I get the recording from H. And I've got five questions from that diary section. But because we we've been known to natter on, no, I'm, no, no, no. Honestly, it's I true. People have said it. Um, I'm going to try and do five quick fire diary questions. Right, shoot from the hip, quick questions. You want, right. well, you want quick answers. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. I can do I can I'll, do the questions I'm, quickly. I'm with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just had a you, little, you just, little wink you just, from H. You're just being nice, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. I don't know if I've got this gig long term yet. I'm still working on it. So, um, so first question. Um, you mentioned afternoon naps, and you've mentioned afternoon naps before, and I'm a big fan of an afternoon nap. And I also remember you mentioned you nap before shows. Um, so a fern, a firm napper, not a fern napper. That sounds wrong. A firm napper. Hmm. Sounds like a place in California, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. Firm uh, napper. But um, yeah, I'll try and be brief. But um, okay. I don't. I don't have afternoon naps when I'm not on tour. It's just that when I am on tour. Something in my brain clicks over and post sound check gets to about six o'clock, bam, I'm exhausted and I can go out like a light. And I think it's related to nerves. I think that I know internally that I'm going to need all this energy from, you know, nine o'clock tonight. Uh, I'm going to have to do something that, that really a person of my years and general fitness shouldn't shouldn't be even thinking of doing. Um, and in order to be able to do it, uh, I have to I have to recharge and and I, we usually have a tour bus you know back back then I think we were in hotels but these days we usually got a tour bus and I will just go out like a light for 40 minutes into a deep sleep I could never do it at home 
I I used to do it when I was on the road a lot. I used to power nap. Stop and power nap. It's incredible. If you can do a 20-minute power nap, it really, really works. And I used yeah. to do it when I was on long journeys. As soon as I felt myself go, stop, 20 minutes. So I'm a firm fan. Um, Irish coffee. Irish coffee's come up again. Uh, is this just a ruse for early morning drinking? Well, it was a long time ago, that. Um, I think I probably did did resort to the old Irish coffee. Um but I, I don't I don't drink Irish coffee as, as much these days because um, that amount of cream or anything like that I'll put on half a stone just having one. Uh, back then I was younger and it it kind of didn't seem to matter how much crap I ate. You know I never used to put a pound on, um, but I got to be more careful now. So uh, I've you know that's why I suppose that's part of the reason that G and T's become the old drink of choice because it's a bit kinder on your belly. Um, back then, Irish coffee. I don't know. I used to drink it a lot in Holland. I, I would, I would probably still resort to an Irish coffee if I was in Amsterdam. You know, sitting in the lightest plane, um, because of cappuccino. I mean, Dutch coffee is bloody dreadful, to be honest. Um, the 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 Dutch have never really got coffee sorted out. Uh, so if you ask for a cappuccino in a Dutch cafe, it, it, I mean, it's just dreadful. Tastes like shit. So it's good with a bit of Irish whiskey and you know, a dollop of cream on top. Right, okay. Um, you waxed lyrical about uh, Paris, <laughs> about the venue in Paris. You're going to get hate mail from uh, the Dutch, but that's normal. Well, um, the Dutch are fairly aggressive anyway, aren't they? Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Slight, not, not aggressive people, but they have a slight aggressive tone. They do. They do. They're, they're critical people. You know, I don't think they mean it. Well, they will be now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, love the Dutch, love them. Yeah, indeed. No, but you—you know where you've got them. That's the thing with the Dutch. You know, they're not shallow. That you get, you get the uh, bam in the face. You know. Yeah. Um, you were waxing lyrical about the venue in Paris. Um, so favorite venue. Oh, it's a toss-up between uh, Le Zenith, which I really, really love, and the other one that I can never remember the name of, uh, where everybody used to play, and we've only ever done it once. Uh, the Beatles used to play there, and the Stones, and Edith Piaf, and I just can't remember. I, I have a mental block on the name of it, and it's a really we, ordinary name. So we'll have to we'll look put, that up and put it in after. We'll put it, put it in the show notes. Fine, fine. And But I didn't... Oh, I, Okay, so widen it. Favourite venue that's not Paris? Favourite venue anywhere? National Auditorium, Mexico City, Albert Hall, London, um, Music Centrum, Utrecht. Okay, nice. They're all all Um, fantastic. You mentioned Sarah Ball um, with the whole Isn't Even album cover, uh, which I believe you have the original of. I do. It's 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 uh, in the roof, or not in the roof. I mean, I haven't had it kind of <laughs> sunken into the, the roof. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's on the wall in the next room. Yeah, I'm very very lucky to have that, and I'm eternally grateful to the band for for allowing me to have it because everyone had equal claim on it. Really, it had been my idea um, to use Sarah. Uh, I'd been reading a book called Love in the Time of Cholera by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez 
the Penguin edition, and it and it had all these dark, spooky, these dark spooky that looked like ghosts on the on the front of it. And it's not easy to draw ghosts. And it was dark, and it was blue, and and uh, it just occurred to me that 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 for for holidays in Eden, it would be a a perfect sort of approach. And Bill Smith, the record designer that we used to use, the, the sleeve designer we used to use in those days, um, I went to him and I said, you know, how would you feel about something like this? And I showed him the book cover and he said, well, let's see if we can find her and commission her to do, to, to do something. And he did and she did. And that's it. And the, then I think they put the title on the front in a little ring around the moon. But apart from yeah. that... Um, it's all done with pastels, mm. um, and it's beautiful. And it I, is. I it ended is up beautiful. with it. It's one of my favourite covers. Um, I think it's. I think it's fantastic. And I think when, particularly with the show, with the drapes and everything, I thought it was. Thought it was great. She was and very one nice. final one. Yep. One, one final quick fire. Um, the nun and the blind man joke. Mm. Did you steal it from Vicar of Dibley? I can't. Honestly, remember. But if the punchline is "nice tits," where do you want this blind? Then I probably we, did. Right. Okay. Well, that is the punchline, <laughs> uh, and it's one of the greatest punchlines ever. Um, and so, yes. So that, that that's there's, fine. That's I've, fine. There's, it's the, such there's a, good a joke. better punchline, which is not bad for fifty p. But um, you've got to do the hands with it. I don't know if you know that one. Do you? I, 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 I've, I've worked out where you're going with it. Uh, though looking at the way you were doing it, it was obviously a much taller woman. Um, um, we might get complaints about That's that. That's a great punchline. We'll, we'll, we'll ride it out. Um, it's better than the joke. We, uh, uh, so, yeah, well, so we're there. We're there. Chapter chapter seven. Um, uh, it's been It's been a treat again. It's been an absolute treat. Fantastic. What a good job I cheered up. Uh, yes, yes, because you were you were a bit grumpy um, an, an hour and a half ago, but we'll we'll ride over that. Um, uh, it's only human. Uh, it's only human. Um, if you've picked up on this from last week's podcast, we will now go to a little section where uh, H will will be singing, singing the names of twenty or so. Uh, well, twenty eight if it's the same as last week. Uh, no, don't patrons. say twenty eight, or I'll do thirty five. Tell me twenty three, <laughs> yes. then we're in with a chance. And as yet unconfirmed number of patrons, will you, your little shout out is on its way, or your little croon out is on its way. Uh, and, uh, and and other than that, take care, stay safe, everybody. Uh, congregate in groups of no more than six. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and we'll see you all soon. You can form a band. <laughs> you can form Woo. a band. <laughs> this will be random. Of course. Thank you, Stuart Parry, Vicky Hurst, Josephine Elliott, Linda Hayes, Richard Faulkner. Mary Meany, Tracy Kirish, O'Kirich, Stephen Mayer, not forgetting Sarah Golding.
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.